Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us for Compass Point, the podcast from the VCU Wilder School's Office of Research and Outreach. Here, we discuss current policy and governmental issues, share promising practices for conducting research, explore research conducted by faculty members within the Wilder School and beyond, and provide tips for students and others interested in pursuing their own research. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Christopher White, an assistant professor in our Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness Department. So Dr. White, thank you so much for being here. We're really excited to have you join us. Um, To start, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your research interests? Sure thing. So I'm a political scientist. Uh, My background is in international relations, comparative Mm -hmm. politics. Um, but specifically, I'm an international security researcher. Okay. Um, pretty much everything I do is about information technology. That's mm-hmm. the core um, topical theme that runs through everything I do. Um, but uh, but more generally, I, I, I think I'm known as the, the cyber guy in the school because I right. run the cyber curriculum for the school. And mm-hmm. um, But, you know, more broadly than that, the things that I study, the things that I teach about um, you could probably draw a broader line around them and call it, you know, technology and international security or national security studies. Okay. Things like cyber conflict, uh, but specifically the dynamics of decision making in cyber conflict, um, artificial intelligence, um, and then in particular, um, information warfare, influence operations, mm-hmm. um, subversion that is uh, enabled by the internet, um, that kind of thing. Right. I mean, those are all really interesting topics and I think especially relevant, um, today with everything we have going on. What made you, um, get interested in that and want to pursue those topics? Yeah. I mean, I got into this bit by bit. I, I mean, I would probably note that I'm not a computer scientist. Okay. I'm again, a political scientist. Right. Um, and yet I've, I've garnered something of a I suppose reputation simply because of the things I teach and the things I research is I'm the cybersecurity expert in school. And so that's that's an interesting development. I um, I went to William & Mary for my undergraduate. I'd always okay. been interested in international relations. Um, part of that was simply coming uh, to this country when I was about 14. My dad is a director oh, at the okay. World Bank. Um, and we moved here from Scotland when I was at that age. Okay. Um, so I was, I was quite young, but mm-hmm. you know, uh, a little bit of travel uh, was a common thing for me early in life. At William and Mary, I got um, I got particularly into the idea of uh, international security was somewhere I wanted to nest a career, and yeah, I came out and I was interested in a lot of the stuff you you tend to expect um, folks at an undergraduate level being interested in the big themes, right? The rise right. of China, um, the, the you know the resurgence of Russia, the United Nations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so I went, I started a master's degree up near DC. I started doing the you know, internship at Think Tank, into research assistant at Think Tank kind of route. And I just got exposed to a lot of different um, things there. I was particularly um, placed on kind of like Asian security detail a lot of the time, um, which led me to um, look at the technological aspects of things like the rise of China, the modernization Mm -hmm. of its military. And then kind of by pure happenstance, I got, um, they had a senior fellow at one of the think tanks that I was interning with um, who came in from MITRE Corporation. So he was uh, basically being brought in to do their technology and cyber politics uh, work. Um, and this is like 12 or oh God, it's 12 or 13 years ago. Um, and it wasn't a point in time when most of these institutions in DC had dedicated cyber conflict or technology focused programming. Um, so they didn't have an assistant to give to him. So they're just saying, you know, you work with him. Okay. And he exposed me to um, a, an absolute ton of stuff that um, at least until this past 10 years or so, 
tended to be very much behind the scenes in national policy debates, national policy right. discourse, which is to say the, you know, the architecture and the function of the internet, how that actually produces, as we've seen, uh, very real um, threats to uh, the economy, society, right. to the country, um, threats to the polity itself, you know, with um, democratic hacking uh, episodes and so on. Um, and I took that into my PhD. I um, worked specifically with someone that was uh, interested in kind of the political communications of foreign policy mm -hmm. um, and that kind of blended with my tech interests and you know hey presto you've got information warfare as a, as a focus area right so that's where we are and what was the topic of your PhD I wrote uh, my dissertation and this is a book that will come out next year that's exciting um, it is exciting yeah it's uh, it's taken a long a long time uh, to put together uh, after the dissertation into book format because things keep happening. I have to keep updating it. Right. But I wrote about um, how non-state actors, but particularly how social movements at the fringes of global society, mm -hmm. conspiratorial uh, movements, um, extremist hate movements, white supremacists, um, groups that see themselves or are forced to see themselves as existing at the fringes, how they use the internet to antagonize, to reach right. out to... Um, to people and to spread their message where they can. And you might have noticed that that kind of uh, interaction between the fringe and the mainstream is actually shockingly more common and visible this past right. decade or so than it yes. seemed for, I mean, just any time in history mm -hmm. previously. So the book explains that essentially. Yeah. And particularly it explains why you get things like January 6th and Unite the mm -hmm. Right and um, things that are um, odd and unusual in historical perspective. Right. Um, and it particularly kind of appears in many cases like uh, it's, I don't know, like it's an organic thing. People like turned out onto the streets. Um, yeah, you have, you know, elite rhetoric, you know, Trump and, and others uh, making comments that get people to come out and support them. But there's more to it than that. And the, mm -hmm. the role of the Internet and in all of it is perennially underspecified. You might be surprised to... To hear. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I look forward to seeing that book come out. Do you have a title set for it that you can share? Uh, leaderlessness. Okay. It's I like called, that. Yeah, it's called that's Leaderlessness cool. Subversion in the Age of the Internet. Okay. Um, and it's that the whole argument, the point is, is essentially that um, uh, Web 2.0 in particular, the social media turn, the socialization, mm -hmm. the corporatization of, right. of web services has uh, produced an environment where uh, fringe communities construct these narratives, they construct public figures um, as trigger points. And right. so when somebody like uh, you know, Donald Trump or Steve Bannon or Viktor Orban in Hungary or mm -hmm. Marine Le Pen or something, when they say something, I mean, there's a direct impact of their, you know, direction, you know, people get on the streets for, for me. Um, right. But the power of their words is actually coming from the way in which these communities have created their own little echo chambers. They build these narratives and they give power within online spaces mm -hmm. to the words of, of these elites. And so that's a very unique kind of evolution of this relationship between the fringe and the rest. Yeah, absolutely. And congratulations on the, the progress you're making. You. Um, so in addition to the forthcoming book, do you have any other um, like highlights or successes that you've experienced um, that you want to share? Sure. I mean, there's an interesting dynamic to a lot of what I do, which is that um, this is a, a, whatever you want to call this, cyber conflict studies, you know, digital security studies. Um, this is a, a, a young but very much growing quickly field right. and 
it's a field that was um, developed probably uh, you know in the 1990s to begin with. People started writing about you know threat from hacktivists and cyber terrorists and yada yada yada. Right? Mm -hmm. It's a field that's laden with often outdated assumptions. Um, just listen to any conversation in DC about cyber deterrence, and you'll start to think this sounds curiously like Cold War nuclear deterrence debates. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's because it, it really is. The concepts have been kind of taken and updated and applied to this new domain, and that's often not necessarily appropriate. And right. so for me, um, a lot of what I've done, a lot of what I think of as, as a fairly big success, um, they're actually relatively little things from a, um, you know, policy applications perspective or a big piece of work right. or something, but it's because um, I'm involved in defining the field. Mm -hmm. um, there are a number of, of things I'm, I'm quite proud of. There's, uh, I wrote a, a book with a co-author, Brian Mazinek, um, in, it came out in 2018. Um, there's currently a second edition um, that will come out, I think, later this year, uh, going through the, the whole press process. And that was uh, one of the first course books, primers, and it's, it's quite substantial on cyber conflict. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that students that are trying to learn about cyber conflict in the social sciences or in public policy um, struggle with is the fact that there is not many cohesive resources, right? You right. want to take public admin, you want to take international relations. Mm -hmm. um, there are how many textbooks on those? There are how many core cohesive resources? Um, tons. So there were none, um, and there are now a few, uh, but there were really none when I started putting that project together. So that was, um, that was I think, a, a particularly noteworthy thing in what I've done so far. And I do actually have another book coming out this year, only in about four months' time, uh, with two marine colonels. Uh, and we're talking about artificial intelligence and how okay. it's likely to be adopted by military organizations, um, which again, I think is uh, an example of speaking first about an issue. There's not many people that have spoken about these issues in a, uh, an analytic, rigorous fashion. Um, just lots of voices that say we should talk about it, so. Mm -hmm. That's great. And I think, you know, you've touched on this a little bit, but, you know, being um, a new field, and as you say, kind of you're in a position where you're sort of defining the field, what are some of the main challenges or some of the other challenges that you've experienced? Well, I mean, particularly if you, if you focus in on the idea of cyber conflict, um, how do you know what you know? you know, gathering data, um, doing effective case analyses, um, running ethnographic um, surveys for experimental purposes or doing interviews. Um, generalization is a, is a perennial problem. Um, the attribution challenge kind of pervades a lot of uh, work on digital security pretty broadly and the attribution problem simply being that, um, well, it's actually two levels, right? We oftentimes do not have enough technical evidence to construct a good idea of what might have happened mm -hmm. in a clandestine setting. Right. Um, and then secondarily, and this is probably the bigger one, even when we do have a reasonably good idea of what happened, because technical attribution is, it takes a while, but it's better than a lot of people kind of believe. We can really do a good job at deconstructing cyber attacks, especially if we're given a few months after they happen, and we can learn from them. But connect that cyber attack to who launched it, uh, particularly if you're talking about, you know, Russian state-sponsored uh, cyber attacks. Um, what's the level of evidence we would require to uh, label that as something ordered by Putin or something that came from uh, the head of the of the military or if it was something that just happened from Russian IP space and that's about the most we can say. So there's these perennial challenges of um, how can we get information and then when we do have information, is this really what we think it is? Right. Um, 
you know, and a big part of that as well is 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 the fact that this the landscape of things we're interested in here uh, involves uh, private actors. In fact, you know, most of the internet is privately owned and operated. Mm -hmm. When the United States government wants to launch a cyber operation, it's it's ninety five, ninety six percent of the time going to be operating on private networks. Gray space, we think of it as. Um, for academics, I mean, it's not like companies are willing to hand over their data any more than the you know. The NSA might be uh, willing to, for the most part, and so um, it's not just the fact that so much of this is clandestine and we don't know to ask for information that we haven't seen, even though it would be useful. It's that there are so many different stakeholders we possibly would have to engage with to effectively study any topic, um, which is something that encourages folk to fall back on these old legacy concepts that are already there. And hey, if we don't have another option then it makes analytic sense to, to, to use the, the logics, the tools, the concepts that we do have. Um, and you've had a very odd, yeah, we've had a very strange kind of field develop actually as a result right. of that here. Like we look at cyber issues dramatically differently than other countries do. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look to like China and Russia, it's different worlds. Absolutely. And you mentioned um, Russia, and I know that you've recently published several articles um, focusing on cyber warfare and the current war going on in um, Ukraine. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about those pieces and maybe what are some of the main implications that have come out of those works? Yeah, sure. So um, I've published, yeah, I've published a few you know, editorials just because there's so many interesting things to talk about with this right. um, crisis. I mean, the big kind of cyber dimension of the Russia-Ukraine war that um, got everyone talking, you know, a month ago when this started, um, and has you know persistently been mentioned in pretty much every cyber um, editorial I've read about this, is the fact that um, there was no um, cyber Russian blitzkrieg like so many. I'll note pundits and public voices and policymakers. Um, Mark Warner uh, of Virginia even made a comment along these lines. Uh, you know, they all expected there to be this lightning set of strikes mm -hmm. in advance of an actual invasion if it was going to occur, and it never happened. It never happened, right. and that's not surprising for people like me that um, that study the dynamics of cyber conflict, the decision making, the the characteristics of, of, of cyber instruments, weapons, whatever you want to call them, you know, using code for uh, political purposes. Um, this is not surprising at all because it's, um, it's, it's just fundamentally the case that cyber weapons can't be used as warfighting tools. I mean, you can't control territory with them, right? right. Um, there are always temporary victories involved when mm -hmm. you hit somebody with a cyber attack. I mean, yeah, you can be disruptive, you can be a nuisance, you can be antagonistic, you can get something of value out of it, but they'll unplug, they'll patch it, it'll be back up and running. So it doesn't, right. you know, there's not a coercive or a, or a battlefield value to cyber. So it's not surprising at all to most of us that do this, and I, and I speak about this in um, at least a couple of these articles as a, as a premise, that, um, that we didn't see uh, cyber attacks. But a point that I'm, I've been making um, in pretty much every one that I write about is that we have to be careful not to see what we saw, um, which falls in line with, with established expectations, and assume that this all comes down to, right, well, the technology works in a particular fashion, so hey, we can predict when cyber attacks will occur, because that's clearly not the case. And in particular, with um, this specific crisis, we've seen a lot of evidence of the weird and unique way in which Russian politics works, particularly the kind of loyalty politicking uh, of Putin's government, uh, the um, external oligarchic elements of the thing, the way in which uh, the kind of need to impress and stay in Putin's good books has 
prompted different bureaucracies and different institutions across the Russian government um, to play games with the information they're giving him. Um, that actually probably helps explain also a lot of what we've seen with regards to um, Russia's use of cyber. Um, the FSB, uh, which is Russian uh, intelligence that is uh, largely the capable cyber actor within uh, the government, at least outside the military, um, is has been clearly incentivized to, um, in the lead up to the war, to play up the idea that Russian forces could, in a lightning strike, have great success in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, that probably explains why cyber wasn't kind of put out there as a tool uh, to be integrated with alongside conventional military activities. Um, it's simply the case that there would be too high of a kind of a reputational or a relevancy cost for the FSB in doing that. Um, there's also one other article I wrote, uh, broke down. We've got some fascinating leaked information coming out of Russia about these non-state and criminal entities and elements that are linked to uh, Russian uh, foreign policy. Russia has uh, been a hotbed for cybercrime, in fact, probably the hotbed for cybercrime in the world um, for a couple of decades at this point. And the kind of rule of thumb with, uh, with that is that uh, Russia has said, will permit you to operate in Russian IP space um, as long as you never hit Russia, right? Okay. Don't screw right. with us, screw with other people, and you're completely fine. Mm -hmm. um, the The reality is, though, um, we've seen there's a, a ransomware gang, in fact, probably the most infamous of them, called Conti. Um, they had uh, a bit of a crisis over the past several weeks. Uh, they had a number of, I know, in fact, tens of thousands, I think six or 70,000 at this point, uh, internal documents leaked. And it kind of shows how a lot of these criminal entities have a weird um, blended political and criminal economic identity. They were clearly prompted to throw out a full-throated support for Putin's government in the early days of the crisis. Um, then they try to walk that back because many of the people that they have on their payroll, some of whom are Ukrainian, <laughs> clearly did not enjoy the fact that they were taking a political stance. Okay. And then these documents began to get leaked. Conti couldn't control the situation. The head of the group disappeared. Mm -hmm. um, they've shut down operations, um, which is shocking, right? Because this is one of those uh, groups we probably would have expected to see launching that cyber blitzkrieg before the whole thing. Right. So. There's a lot of interesting dynamics to be broken down here. And since, you know, it sounds like policymakers were expecting one thing, and as you said, that didn't happen. What are some, I guess, key things maybe policymakers like should be doing, or do you think they will be doing like, in the future? Um, mm -hmm. Like, what can they learn from what they've seen so far here? So we're at an interesting inflection point. Um, there's a degree to which any, any attempt to... Um, to, to, to draw lessons learned here about cyber is going to have to grapple with the fact that uh, Western responses to Russian involvement in Ukraine um, is, is going to change the landscape of what Russia uses cyber for part of, as part of its foreign yeah, policy. That's a good um, point. They've started moving towards the Chinese model of internet control. Um, they've uh, kicked out Western companies, those that haven't mm -hmm. you know just left by themselves. Right. They've uh, made and they've and they've made this mandatory in some cases a number of rule changes about how uh, different organizations, particularly those linked with the state, have to connect to the internet. Uh, they one of the big ones is the domain name service uh, lookup has to occur entirely within Russia now, which means that uh, Russian companies their internet traffic never leaves mm -hmm. Russia. 
Okay. At this point, which it usually would. Those servers are typically in the West, right. uh, which has been a big boon to uh, Western intelligence efforts, as you might imagine, for several decades. Well, now Russia is kind of drawing that wall around itself. It's going to try to create a kind of curated garden, and that you know splinter net future that we can expect is. Um, is going to fundamentally change how Russia uses cyber for its, uh, for its foreign policy making. Um, I do think there's there's a number of interesting things you could pull from this. Um, one is uh, one is probably that um, well, as I said, one is probably that we need to not fall back on kind of a, a technical set of explanations for why cyber um, ends up being useful for countries. Again, the, the whole dynamic of, of, of politicking and uh, relevancy uh, politicking within Russia um, clearly has some explanatory value for, for what we're seeing. Right. Um, there, the, the value of non-state cyber operations is clearly on display here in Ukraine too. Um, the fact that there are several hundred thousand um, just people uh, with differing levels of IT skills, you know, folk that um, don't know too much and have been uh, essentially conscripted um, you know, voluntarily, but as, uh, you know, disinformation checkers, there are people that work in the IT industry in Ukraine and Europe and the US and everywhere in the world that have um, offered their services to the Ukrainian government and they're helping launch cyber operations against Russia. Um, the non-state uh, element to this uh, needs to be a point of some, some focus going forward here. And with this, you know, being such a new field and with there being, you know, lots of interesting questions and lots of things that aren't yet known, I can see probably a lot of students and junior faculty members being interested in this and wanting to make what you're studying a topic of their study as well. What advice do you have um, for people who might want to start getting into um, your line of research? Well, so for one, for one thing, I, I can actually say just this past several years, uh, maybe this past half decade or so for the first time, there actually are... Um, uh, research centers, there are internships, there are programs that are cohesively focusing on these issues. Um, it, it used to be the case, and even when I was getting my PhD, which I don't think was that long ago, but <laughs> um, but I was going through my master's degree and my PhD, um, you know, there, there were informal networks of people that were starting to study this kind of thing, um, but we didn't have uh, a lot of formal, um, you know, postdoc opportunities or you come out of undergrad and you you know you want to do an internship that focuses explicitly on these issues they simply didn't exist now i would say um to some uh somebody if they're an undergraduate and they're interested in getting into these issues um for one thing look to the major dc think tanks council on foreign relations csis center for new american security they have a lot of dedicated resources things that you can read uh things that you can um uh, pursue in terms of um online educational opportunities, you know, certificates here and there, um, and just uh, they'll give you a map of, okay. of what this ends up looking like, um, uh, you know, work in this field ends up looking like. I think a lot of students come to this uh, field from, I mean, they come from very diverse backgrounds. You get a lot of like technologists who are over in the School of Engineering right now mm -hmm. who are interested in the policy um, aspect, and you get a lot of students in our own programs here um, that uh, they're afraid that they don't have the technical chops and that they won't be able to get the technical jobs and that precludes right. them for uh, for these jobs. Well, look, I mean, for the last 10 years or so, there's been ooh, about 18,000 jobs on average, 16 to 18,000 jobs in the state of Virginia that are cybersecurity focused that come up every year and about four or 5,000 of them are always unfilled. Wow. There's, there's, there's an okay. immense amount 
And, and the ones that do get filled are the ones where people with associate's degrees in IT go and get good jobs. Mm -hmm. The ones that are unfilled in particular are those that are policy focused and compliance okay. and regulatory focused. So there are increasingly these opportunities um, in state agencies and again with the, uh, the federal government and the kind of you know elements like the think tanks that reference the federal government for getting into this field. Okay, I mean that's great to know. I'm sure that's yeah. going to be helpful for um, you know students listening who maybe want to pursue those opportunities. So it yeah. sounds like there's definitely a lot out there. Yeah, and it's a recent, a relatively recent development, yeah. but it's a good one. Absolutely. And then I kind of I like to make my last question kind of a fun one. What is just like your favorite thing about the work that you do? Uh, it's well, it's 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 always relevant. Uh, I suppose that's one feature of the field that I've chosen. Um, I actually asked a, a colleague of mine a question along these lines on a panel not too long ago, and he um, uh, gave a kind of flippant answer. He, he said, because it's the never-ending story. <laughs> um, but you know what? I actually kind of agree with that. I, yeah. I always feel like I'm doing something that is interesting. It's evolving. I never get to um, the answer with a capital A. I, 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 right. I find answers. Um, I, I, you know find inference and generalization and we, we gradually know more than we previously did but I'm I'm working in an area where the the sand is moving beneath our feet um, you know everything I've referenced here cyberspace uh, internet architecture artificial intelligence um, it's man-made uh, and the human factor pushes it forward in new and weird and wonderful ways and so it's it's the fact that the problems I am trying to study now are going to be different that keeps me going I, I, I can see that being frustrating for some people mm -hmm. um, but that's that's part of what um, makes it fun for me uh, perpetually there's always cool and new things uh, to study and what I thought I did know I'm gonna have to change that going forward as yeah. well and that's that I guess my head yeah. really buzzing no, that does sound cool. I mean, so my area of research is a different topic, but even mm -hmm. just like listening to you, like I'm getting excited about your work too <laughs> and what questions we might see and what answers we'll find. Yeah, um, good. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to share with us? Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure to, to talk with you. Um, I, I think for me as, a, as the person here within the Wilder School that does uh, cybersecurity, cyber conflict work, um, my highest priority for the past five years I've been here now has been to make this a more accessible issue for our undergraduates. You have right. um, a lot of students coming into cybersecurity coursework, which now is within HSEP is required for the past couple of years is in mm -hmm. the core of our curriculum. And um, a lot of students are quite eager, um, a great many more kind of treat this like they treat, you know, statistics classes, which is right. with trepidation. Um, there is some barrier there. And even if you, you're, you know, you want to, to learn, you want to actually gain a skill, um, it's it, it can it can feel a bit foreign, and so my goal has been to uh, attempt to make this more accessible. Um, and I suppose what, suppose the last thing I would say is just that to any any student that's listening to this, graduate or undergraduate, um, I don't have a technical background. I don't. I'm not a computer scientist. I was exactly where you are, um, and I do what I do now in the way that I do it, just because I found it interesting. Um, this is not that much to wrap your head around. Ultimately, um, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. White, for joining us. It was really nice having you um, and learning you. from you. And also thank you to our audience for listening. And we hope that you will join us again for the next episode of Compass Point.